0: today on growth mindset university
1: so without focused intentional high relevance high touch outreach nothing good is gonna happen
0: you're listening to growth mindset university educating tomorrow's leaders with lessons from today's entrepreneurial elite It's a progressive new age of business we find ourselves in, and we'll help you find the success you seek by listening to today's industry professionals and thought leaders teach us the lessons we should have learned in school but didn't. Now, please welcome your host, Jordan Paris. My guest today is David
2: Newman. David is a certified speaking professional. He's the author of the business bestseller, Do It Marketing, and another book, Do It Speaking. 77 Instant Action Ideas to Market, Monetize, and Maximize Your Expertise, published by HarperCollins. And that book just grabbed me in the bookstore one day. Like, I picked it up. I don't know how, why, but it grabbed me. And as I start to page through it, it grabs me more. And I'm sitting there for like 45 minutes going through. I started at maybe page like 140 or something. One of the titles, one of the chapters stuck out to me, and I, and I just I couldn't stop reading. The way that, you know, it's 77 instant action ideas, it's just the book is designed in a framework to keep you engaged and, and keep the pages turning. And that's exactly what happened. And I finished the book yesterday, really easy read, entertaining read. Like there, but there's no fluff stuff. It's just 77 instant action ideas. So I love the book. Do it speaking. Go get that book if you want to market, monetize, and maximize your expertise. David's also the host of The Speaking Show, an iTunes Top 50 marketing podcast, and he helps executives and entrepreneurs master speaking as the ultimate marketing tool, personal brand builder, and one-to-many sales platform. As a speaker himself, he's delivered over 600 paid programs since 1992 and counts 44 of the Fortune 500. Among his clients and audiences, David is also the creator of the Speaker Profit Formula Mentoring Program, which has over 800 successful graduates, ranging from brand new speakers to members of the National Speakers Association Speaker Hall of Fame. You can find David, doitmarketing.com, and on Twitter, D. Newman, at D. Newman, and uh, he's over there on LinkedIn as well. So after I... That book just grabbed me. I was like, I got to reach out to this guy. And I start doing my homework on him and I see, oh my gosh, he's from, he lives in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania. I said, wait, wait a second. I was born there. And, you know, if it weren't for, you know, we're recording this in the middle of a pandemic right now. If it weren't for that, we'd probably be doing this interview in person in the place where it all started for me. And uh, David was kind enough to send me. His book, Do It Speaking, and w- which I finished, as I mentioned, and wow, just love it. David Newman, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming.
1: Jordan, thank you so much. Dude, we got to travel around. I need that intro for the rest of my life.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's that, that's. I mean, I got to give credit where, where credit's due. And uh, so, I have a lot of questions today, as I mentioned to you before, like just a ridiculous amount of questions that I just want to make a note to listeners here that there's there were too many questions for me to like organize this interview perfectly. And so if we're jumping around today, uh, I apologize because we have a lot of questions to just get through, a lot of questions that I'm curious about. So David, I'll, I'll start it. What did you do before speaking? Get a little background
1: on you well before speaking I was uh let's see how far to go back I started college pre-med I failed out of chemistry physics and calculus all in the same semester so no more dr Newman to surgery dr Newman to surgery that wasn't gonna happen uh, you, I you very changed- well you very well
2: could have uh if, if that worked out my my dad he's a he's a surgeon he you know worked at uh uh Pottstown memorial uh medical center right that's what, Pottstown hospital pretty much i'm sure you're familiar with it
1: i'm, I'm just you, you could have been he, colleagues one day if i, I we could out. have been but i'm guessing <laughs> he did not fail out of chemistry no. physics and calculus on the same semester <laughs> so clearly i'm not a science guy but i changed my major to drama and english And I actually graduated with that, went on to get a master's degree in theater, and this was now in New York City. And I spent four years doing professional theater in New York City. Tough to make a living at that. A friend of mine says to me, hey, you're also teaching at your graduate school at the same time, right? And I said, yeah. He says, well, you can do that teaching for companies, and that's called corporate training. And maybe you can make a living at that. So in 1992, I took my friend's advice, and I did, in fact, jump into my first of three corporate training and consulting jobs. And Jordan, those were in big technology consulting firms, big HR management consulting organizations. I worked for Microsoft. I worked for a big HR consultancy called Towers Perrin. And then I also worked for PeopleSoft, which was then later on, after I left, bought by Oracle. So a lot of big high-tech consulting, HR management consulting. January 1st, 2002, went out on my own, figuring, well, gosh, Jordan, how hard can this be? I already know how to speak, train, coach, and consult, been doing it for 10 years. How, how hard could it be just to do this on my own? And what I found out was, like every new entrepreneur finds out, it's not about doing the work. It's about getting the work. And I was totally hopeless and clueless, and I hit every brick wall. I hit every dead end as a newly minted entrepreneur. I went out with 30 different workshop topics, literally no specialization, no niche, no Mm. clue, Uh, You know, people would ask me, uh, they say, Oh, so you're a professional speaker. Uh, What do you speak on? (laughs) And my comeback would be, No, no, you don't get it. I am a professional speaker. What do you need spoken on? And Uh, I would do anything for mm, anyone on any topic for any fee. Desperation. If If I didn't know what that topic was. I would go to the library. I would go to Amazon. I would buy a couple books. And like the next week, boom, here's your program. Performance management, sure. Time management, yes. Team building, recruiting, hiring, firing, of course. If there was a book on it, I would read the book, digest it, throw up some kind of crazy improvised workshop or, or training session on it. And I was a total pinball. I mean, literally jumping from topic to topic, working from this company, that company, this industry, that industry, no focus, no momentum, no niche, no expertise. It was a very hard, lonely road those first couple of years,
2: wow. And you know, we're going to get into how to get the work and where you now have the luxury of being able to say no and speak only on X, Y, and Z. And if it's not X, Y, or Z, you say no. uh, Or or, or at least I assume. So how is speaking the ultimate marketing strategy?
1: Well... You're asking, of course, at a very interesting time because, as you mentioned a moment ago, we are in the middle of this pandemic. So traditional. So I, I, speaking, I am gonna. I am. I am gonna release this once
2: we're not quarantined. By the way. <laughs>
1: oh okay. Yeah. But I think there are some significant shifts, even for after things get back to the new normal. So we can, you know, well, I'll I'll, yeah, I'll I- answer it both ways. Is that all right? Yeah. Okay. Well, speaking is the ultimate marketing strategy, and it's also the other things that you mentioned, the ultimate personal brand builder and the ultimate one-to-many sales platform. Because think about the way, whether it's online or offline, there is one presenter, there's one person on the stage, there's one person behind the microphone on that webinar or on that video, and there's 40, 50, 80, 100, 500, 2,000 people In the audience, if I show, if you were, Jordan, if you landed from outer space and all you knew was that, you know, this group of humans here uh, is, you know, strange little bipedal creatures that are going around. If I showed you one person that's in the middle of a circle or that's on a stage in the front of a room and lots and lots and lots of other people paying rapt attention. And I asked that space alien, hey, who do you think is the most important person In this photograph, they would probably point to the person in the middle of the circle or the person that's on the stage by him or herself with all of the other space aliens sort of looking at them paying rapt attention. Because the stage, any stage, a real stage, a virtual stage, a corporate stage, an association stage, that has invested authority, meaning the person that stands there must be someone of importance. They must have something to share. They must know something that the others don't. There must be some wisdom there. And that invested authority is something that if used correctly, it will elevate and escalate your brand. It will uh, accelerate your marketing and sales. And I always say, Jordan, that speaking is the ultimate test drive. So someone doesn't know you, they're not familiar with you or your content or your company or your track record, but when they hear you speak 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour, whatever it might be, they are sampling your expertise, your wisdom, your advice, your tactics, your strategies. They're they're getting some value from what you're saying before any money has changed hands. Now, if that particular talk happens to be Really compelling and really relevant and really urgent to some buyers in that audience, they will almost always come up to you afterwards and yes. say, "We I love need that. to talk. We should bring you in. How do we go further? What's the next step?" This was great because the test drive went great, and now they want to buy the car.
2: Absolutely. So we, you know, we've uncovered a, a little part of your journey here, David. We understand the power of speaking as a marketing strategy here but I see this all the time everyone's coming up with these crazy like like headlines you know number one and you talk about it in your book a little bit number one sales speaker like okay and like where'd you get well, number one, what do you mean? Oh, well, out of three people, I was r- uh, ranked number one on this obscure, like, website. <laughs> uh, and you know, people are doing all sorts of gymnastics to like make themselves sound good. And everyone puts like, you see, everyone's a keynote speaker nowadays. Keynote speaker in their headline. People literally put, I've seen like TEDx keynote speaker. And I'm like, TEDx keynote speaker, like what? What are you talking? There's no main speech. There's no keynote speech at t- it. Weird. How can you tell, David, from your perspectives, the difference between the good keynote speakers,
1: the real keynote speakers, and the not so good ones? One of the things I talk about, actually, in both the books that you mentioned, Jordan, both the Do It Speaking book, which is the newer one, and the Do It Marketing book, which is just an overall kind of how to market your business, we need indisputable points of proof, which is different than bloviated claims or or some of these kind of artificial, you know, uh, crazy designations from dubious sources. Top-rated speaker. Exactly. Exactly. So part of it is it goes beyond the stage. It goes beyond the speech. So just like you asked me, what did you do before speaking? A lot of corporate buyers and decision makers say, well, where'd this person really come from? What's their track record of experience before they became a consultant, before they became a trainer, before they became a quote-unquote keynote speaker? And I love what you said about that term keynote being bandied about in all sorts of crazy upside down ways where it doesn't really even make sense. It's
2: like, do you even know what keynote means? Right,
1: (laughs) right, exactly. Well, and people often say, "Here's an a quick sidebar, and I'll get back to my main point about indisputable points of proof." People call every speech they ever do a keynote. Right. I'm going to keynote the Rotary Club. Nah, Rotary Club doesn't have a keynote. I'm going to keynote a full day program. No, nah, there's no such thing as keynoting a full day program. So, literally, let's just talk about what that term means. A keynote, and listen to both word, both halves of that compound word, keynote is the first session, the general session on a big stage at some sort of conference or event that strikes the key note and kicks off the event in a certain way that sets the stage for the theme of the conference or all the other sessions that are to follow. So we often talk about an opening keynote, which strictly speaking is the only keynote at the event There's no such thing as a lunchtime keynote if there was a morning keynote, and there's certainly no such thing as a closing keynote at the end of the conference, even though associations and conferences, they will say closing keynote. That's like saying, well, here's our closing opening. (laughs) There's no such thing as a closing opening. So again, that term, because somehow keynote or keynote speaker has become this sexified term where everybody wants to be the keynote. I'll tell you 90% of how speakers and experts get paid is not through keynote speaking. It's through other forms of sharing information, wisdom, insight, etc., cetera, creating a certain outcome for a group of clients or an audience. So that could be training, that could be uh, consulting, that could be coaching, that could be all different forms, that could be online courses, that could be video series, that could be webinars or virtual presentations. So if you're looking at, you know, where's the glamour? The glamour used to be in keynoting, but now there are so many other ways to share your expertise and to really help clients and serve clients. I think we have to get the keynote stardust out of our eyes. Yeah, And part of this goes back to what I was saying about the indisputable points of proof. The traditional indisputable point of proof used to be a book. And Jordan, we've all heard this, I think, misinformation. Oh, you have to have a book if you want to be a speaker. And I disagree with that, even though I have these two fantastic books and I love books and I'm a huge reader. I don't think you have to have a book no. to go out there and speak professionally in any of these different formats. What you need are indisputable points of proof. Meaning, for some people listening, your YouTube channel, if it's an awesome YouTube channel, great content, regularly posted to, highly relevant, you know, you get hundreds or thousands of views on every single video, you're really serving and helping your audience through your YouTube channel, your YouTube channel can be an indisputable point of proof. And there are people, and you and I could probably name names, who are getting $15,000 to go out and speak. They don't have a book, but they have a killer YouTube channel. Other people, it's their blog. Their blog is their indisputable point of proof. For other people, it might be their podcast, that their podcast has Mm -hmm. hundreds or thousands or millions of downloads and reviews, and it's kind of the number one category killer podcast. They don't have a book, but they're getting paid 10, 15, $20,000 because they have the market leading podcast in their industry. So whatever it is, and some people have several of these indisputable points of proof, what buyers are looking for is, are you the real deal? Can you really help our executives, our team, our association members, our audience? And how do I know? Now the reason that a traditionally published book, used to be that indisputable point of proof. It was simply risk reversal. And what I mean by that, Jordan, is when you're published by Wiley or HarperCollins or McGraw-Hill or Portfolio or any of these big publishers, what the buyer of the speaking, training, or consulting is thinking, hey, good enough for HarperCollins, good enough for me. Meaning they don't need to be the first one to make a bet on you. That other people have bet on you and it's been successful. I look at your blog, I see a whole bunch of engagement, a whole bunch of comments. I'm gonna feel better. It's a risk reversal. I go to your YouTube channel. Yeah, exactly. I, I, On the YouTube channel, I see a lot of engagement, a lot of likes, a lot of sharing, a lot of comments, a lot of great content that I think my audience is going to want to see. I will hire you to come in and speak. So you don't need a book anymore. You need indisputable points of proof. Definitely.
2: And something that you, you point out here, you know, you mentioned in passing and you write about extensively in your book is. That meeting planners, event organizers, they're not going to hope and pray. Like, they need to see these indisputable points of proof. Like, they're not going to hope that you come in and deliver. Like, they got to see it. And it's important to think about this. I think the good speakers differentiate from the bad ones in that the good speakers and the successful ones that get hired time and again, like you, they think about the result that they are going to get for the audience, the outcome that they are going to the the the, the define that they're defining the outcome that they're gonna bring the these people to, and they think about it in terms of dollars or or what have you. Like nobody has a speaker problem, but maybe they have a, a people problem or a revenue problem or and and you are coming in. To explicitly to help them solve that problem,
1: you're not just coming in to like talk, right? Amen. Absolutely, could not have put it better myself. Nobody wakes up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat, sits bolt upright in bed, says, "Holy smokes, I need a speaker." Yeah. So when you do wake up yeah. with those problems, right, the urgent, pervasive, mm-hmm. expensive problems, so I would say that. Every speaker, consultant, trainer, expert needs to redefine what they do, not as I'm a professional trainer, I'm a professional consultant, I'm a professional information marketer. We're none of those things. We are professional problem solvers. And the mantra that I'm sharing now more than ever is solve bigger problems, get bigger checks. Yeah.
2: And how... How do you even go about Well, first off, so when you're in these sales conversations, you got to speak about, you know, you got to speak in terms of their problems. I think you maybe call this bridging language in your book, but how do you I even in the first place identify the problem that the person you're speaking to is going through?
1: Well, part of it is research. Part of it is doing a very And and, intentional- and I want to note, this is this is applicable to all of sales. Oh, for sure. Not absolutely speak. right. Anytime that you want to get in front of prospects with a high relevance message, you have to do your homework. You have to do a research step, or what I call in the book, a listening campaign and figure out exactly What are the heartaches, headaches, challenges, gaps, problems, irritations, frustrations, disappointments in the area that you are proposing some sort of solution? Because the magic language, people say, well, David, what's the best headline? What's What should this blog post say? What should this email subject line be? And if you don't know your buyers and you don't know the language that they are using, to describe the problem that you're already brilliant at solving, no message is going to land. So part of building what I call your marketing language bank is learning to speak prospect language about prospect problems. Now, the way to do that is to either talk to some real prospects or people who are like your prospects, right? Have conversations with those people. Ask them some pointed questions about what they're going through, what's working, what's not working, What's missing, funky, broken, and sad. But what you can always do is you can always do a listening campaign online. And that involves going to the blogs, portals, communities, groups, bulletin boards where these people are already gathering. And we're talking about going on to LinkedIn, going onto Facebook and within specific Facebook groups, literally going to blogs, going to article sites where people can comment and like and ask and looking for within your area of expertise and within that type of person that you're trying to market to so if we're going if we're going after accountants and we're going after accounting firms as one of our target markets i would the first question i would ask jordan is have you identified the top 6 or 8 or 10 blogs portals communities and groups where accountants go for answers to their burning issues and have you searched those places for the conversations around the specific topic that you're proposing to help them with? And what threads have a lot of likes, a lot of comments, a lot of shares? Where where are you picking up some juice? Where are you picking up some energy? And what kinds of people are asking those questions right you can reverse engineer this you can look up their email address if it's on a blog post you can look it up you can if it's on linkedin you can just find them directly yeah. on linkedin and then figure out okay this kind of person is complaining about this kind of problem using this kind of language and you don't need to collect hundreds of these people say well, david you know how, mu- how much is enough i would say once you've got 6 or 7 or 8 you're good to go because now what we're doing is pattern recognition what are the common Complaints, words, phrases, and language that they're using to describe their problems, their circumstance, their situation. So I remember early in my career, Jordan, I went out and I had breakfast with the owner of a small professional services firm. He was in consulting, he was in IT consulting specifically. And we sat down for breakfast, and over bacon and eggs, I asked them one question I said, So, What do you really not like about marketing your company? And man, he just opened up. He says, oh my God, I hate marketing. I hate everything about marketing. I hate marketing. I hate marketing consultants. I am so tired, David, of throwing money into a marketing black hole. You never know what's going to work. You never know what's not going to work. And you're not sure how to do it better next time. Now, I had had enough conversations, Jordan, where I'm picking up this vibe Mm -hmm. and my pattern recognition starts to kick in. I'm like, wow, I've probably had four or five other conversations that pretty much echo this conversation. Luckily, I had my notepad in my car and I wrote down throwing money into a marketing black hole. You never know what works. You never know what doesn't. And you never know what to fix next time. I literally wrote that down <laughs> in my car before driving home from this breakfast meeting. I then come home and I change the main headline on my homepage saying, are you sick and tired of marketing? Question mark. Are you tired of throwing money? And then the text, are you tired of throwing money into a marketing black hole where you never know what works? You never know what doesn't. And you don't know how to do better next time. I understand, and we can help. Boom. And that that was on my homepage for years, years and years and years. Not because I heard it once from one guy, but because I did this listening campaign, and it was a consistent theme, yeah. and it came up in my pattern recognition exercise. So if you do that, if the listeners go do that right now with their business, with their website, with what they're trying to sell, with the problems they're trying to solve— your marketing will be 10 times more effective tomorrow morning than it was this morning.
2: And this is how you get check writing entities to love you, yeah?
1: Exactly. And you get
2: in front of them through LinkedIn. Or let's say I use a tool, David, called hunter.io. Like I go to, I. it's probably how I found your email. I probably went to your website and hit the hunter icon and then, uh, bam, like your email came up. <laughs> you know, I can kind of like go to any website. Oh, yeah. Out. You know what else yeah. I do? I'll look up, you know, if I'm trying to get in front of, you know, chief marketing officers uh, at, and, you know, at brands, at businesses, I will look up Zoom, for example, Zoom CMO. And, and then I will start finding their contact information. So, do you have any other methods to get in front of these people at these check writing enti- entities?
1: I do, and it is super simple, and you're not going to believe how effective it is. Are you sitting down?
2: I'm sitting down, yeah.
1: All right. (laughs) And I've used this for years and years. It's not new. It's kind of old school at this point, but it still works. It's Twitter. So I remember I was going after some pretty big corporate sponsorships. This is back about four or five years ago, and I I wanted to connect with – Entrepreneur Magazine. I wanted to connect with American Express. I wanted to connect with all of these companies that were serving small to medium sized business owners. So I find that company's Twitter account. I find the Entrepreneur Magazine main Twitter account, the American Express main Twitter account. What are these people that are monitoring the accounts? What's their job? Their job is to be helpful. Their job is to give answers. Right. Their job is to connect you with the resources at their company that you need. So I would private message these folks, and I would say to the entrepreneur account, hey, I'm looking for some sponsorship contacts at entrepreneur. Who might be the best person to reach out to? And Jordan, you're not mm. going to believe this. Mm. They give you the answer. They say, oh, that's uh, that's Pete Jones in our sponsorship group. His email is Pete." at entrepreneurmag.com, you know, I I can't give you his phone number, but he's pretty responsive by email. And I did this with banks. I did this with credit card companies. I did this with accounting software companies. The entire universe is at your disposal. Uh, Sometimes I would ask in public, like if I had something to, to, to share by way of praise or, Hey, you know what? Just got off the phone with my American Express Platinum uh, customer service person. How fantastic was she? Super amazing. Cleared up this billing problem. Blah 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 blah. I'll put that out in public. Then I will private message that same account saying, "Hey, by the way, thank you so much for blah 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 blah. Here's what you could help me with." So you have to be intentional. You have to be a giver. You can't just be you know uh, you know asking and and being slimy and weird, but Even if it's your first contact, their job is to help connect you with resources and answers. If you say who's in charge of sponsorship, you know, what's the best way to get hold of your CMO? What's the best way to do this? What's the best way to do that? They will more often than not have some valuable insights or even give you specific names and contact info. Big question that's going to sound superficial, but it's not. Did you or
2: did you not, at the time you start doing this, did you have a verified badge yet? I did not have a verified badge. And great that question. Gives it, that gives it all. That There there we go. Anyone can do it. Yeah. Because, I mean, sometimes, you know, can sometimes do you, it. Yeah. You, you know I think seeing in your inbox a verified badge, I think it it lends itself some more credibility. Uh, so the fact that you didn't have it when you start doing this, that's that's great. And so... It is really important to have this type of outreach prospecting strategy um, because otherwise you suffer from, in your words, in your book, Do It Speaking, you suffer from best kept secret syndrome and you're kind of running a business by chance, you know, and you're using hope as a strategy. And while hope is great and it is essential. It's not a strategy. And it's not a good strategy, especially to run a business with. So a good outreach prospecting strategy. This is absolutely essential. Are we missing anything on that front before we move on?
1: Well, I just want to hammer that point home times 10 because this is where so many entrepreneurs drop the ball. They figure, I do great work. We have an awesome product. We have an awesome service. And we just go out there and we're just going to, you know, we'll be on social media and we're just going to, you know, hang out and the phone's going to ring and people are going to come in and we're going to have all kinds of amazing sales and deals are going to come to us and prospects will realize how much they need us. And no. So without focused, intentional, high relevance, high touch outreach. Nothing good is going to happen. And I also say because we're we're so accustomed now to hiding behind screens and we're so reluctant to pick up the phone or pick up Zoom or pick up Skype and have human to human conversations, right? That once once we've established some initial interest, it is not a back and forth personal email. Uh, contest. We're not playing tennis via email. We are trying to humanize these relationships by jumping on a video call, jumping on a telephone call, reaching out and having a conversation with these people so that we can really dig deep into what's going on with them. And if appropriate, invite them to a conversation about how we can help them. So people will often, they'll get to step one where they identify the buyer, they will get to step two, where they send the LinkedIn message or the email with tools like Hunter.io. And we use that as well. Uh, they will do everything to get onto that second base relationship. And then they drop the ball. Then it's yeah. like, oh, now I should be talking to this person because here's what happens, right? And you know, professional salespeople know this, but I think the rest of our folks need to be tuned in. When you email someone, or hit them on LinkedIn and you see that they've replied the very moment that they replied, if it's eleven fourteen AM and I just got a reply in my inbox, I have now two pieces of data about that prospect. Number one, that prospect is somewhat, unless the email says drop dead, that prospect has some level of interest in what we do or some level of responsiveness to what I just sent them. And number two, they're in front of their phone or computer. What I'm gonna do right then and there is I'm gonna pick up the phone. I am not gonna reply to that email. I'm gonna call that person. And Jordan, if you do this, and I'm sure you've had this experience, people freak out. Yeah. They go, Oh, I I just got an email from you. Yeah. Or, or not I'm sorry, I just sent you an email. And I say, I know, that's why I'm calling. And then people laugh, of course, and you know, but it shows two things. Number one, that you're a professional, number two, that you're responsive. And you want to engage them and serve them and help them further. Yeah, and you're not. So if you're not sure when either. do I make that call, the second you get the digital reply, that's when you make the call. Given the the
2: their phone numbers in their email signature,
1: uh, or that you've used some other tools, like you're already connected on LinkedIn, which exposes their phone number, uh-huh. etc. Or you can call the company's main number and say, hey, can I talk to Joe Jones? Sure. May I say what this is about? I'm returning his message. Now, you're not saying I'm returning his phone call. You're saying I'm returning his message because he just sent you a message via email. So language again, super important. I never tell people to lie. I never tell people to twist the truth to their advantage. But when you call moments after someone has emailed you, are you or are you not responding to their message? Yeah,
2: right, yeah, exactly. Now, this is the sales process. This is the the well-organized multi-step relationship building sales campaign that you talk about in your books, right? Like this is, is. this is it. And then you also and i love this and this is something that i've only uncovered in the past 3 months and something that i've only just started to implement myself but interviewing as a prospecting strategy to interviewing as a way to get in front of the exact people that you want to get in front of them so then and i started for i started a completely separate podcast for this explicit purpose then after the interview, David, how how do you keep that relationship going? How do you make how do you make this happen?
1: Well, if you think of the interview as your initial exploratory conversation, which it is, if you do the interview the right way, the way we talk about it in the do-it speaking book, then you simply orchestrate a series of follow-up touch points. Follow up touch point simply means the moment the interview is over, you send a thank you email. Then you take out a little personal stationery or a blank piece of paper, write the same thank you email, put a stamp on it, put a real address on it, it lands on that person's desk two days later. Yeah. Then you simply keep following up. My recommendation is every seven to 10 days. So you're not being a pest, you're not being a stalker, you're not being weird. But every seven to 10 days, they should be hearing from you with a relevant resource or link or article or video that specifically addresses something that they said was important to them during your interview. What if? So you might get an email newsletter, for example, forward it on to that person that you interviewed last week. And say, dear Barbara, this just came across my email. It made me think about your situation with employee recruiting and retention. Feel free to share it with the team. And that's what you're doing for every seven to 10 days. It's a link, a resource, a tool, an article, something to help them. By touch point five, six or seven, you've earned the right to have the pivotal conversation about, hey, Barbara, I've been sending you a lot of resources and tools about recruiting and retention. I was thinking about your situation again this morning, and I think there may be some ways I can be more formally helpful to you. Would that be worth a short chat? And 99% of the time, Jordan, they're going to say, yes, Mm -hmm. I would love that. Because you know what? The problem has gotten worse since we talked. It hasn't gotten better. Or we just had another board meeting about this. Or this is becoming such an increasing pain in my butt. I would love to talk to you about getting some more ideas about how you can help us. Now, they're smart people. They know that that's a sales conversation just like you know that's a sales conversation. When I say to you, hey, Jordan, this interview was fantastic, but you know... As far as your speaking career, I think there may be some ways I can be more formally helpful to you. Uh Would that be worth a short Uh chat? Uh You know I'm going to invite you to consider investing with me if it's in line with your goals and what you want to be doing, and if it's a perfect fit. I would not be holding up my end of our relationship if I didn't offer it to you. And you probably mm. wouldn't be serious about that goal if you said, no, it. no, thanks. I'll keep struggling on my own. I'll, <laughs> I'll just figure this out and keep banging my head against a brick wall for as long as I possibly can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, you'd be open to a conversation about some ways to accelerate your progress to a goal that you already yeah. know that you want.
2: Yeah, and and now a couple other things before I get to my next question that I want to highlight. When you're in that sales conversation, you get there as we're talking about, and then they say, "You're," and again, whether this is speaking or any product or service that you're selling, when you get there and then they say, "Oh, your fee is too high." That means you blew the sales conversation, as you would say, and I love that because I I I wrote in the margin. When you when you put that, you know, your fee is too high. It means you blew the sales conversation. I said, yes, own it. You know, don't say, oh, that person's a they're a they're a, they suck. You know, no, it's it. You you own it. Like it's your fault. You didn't use. You probably didn't use framing language. You didn't frame. Uh, you know, you didn't use brim- bridging language. I mean, you didn't frame. Things in terms of, you know, frame the price in terms of the problem that they have that you're going to solve. You know, there's a lot of things that you could have done better, or maybe it's just not a perfect fit. Like the other person doesn't suck, own it. And uh, so you talk about in speaking specifically, the minimum credible fee being $4,500. Just I it really, yes. Now, <laughs> explain very quickly that there. Well, sure. I know the well, answer, it's... obviously, but I want other people to hear it.
1: Right. No, of course. So I think the this is information that I have never, ever seen in any other book. And, you know, obviously as a student of the game, as someone who knows my competitive marketplace, anytime that any of my fellow gurus out there comes out with a book on... Uh, speaking or the business side of speaking, or you know how to monetize your expertise, coaching books, consulting books, training books, uh, you know digital marketing books. I've read most of the good ones out there. No one ever talks about what is the minimum fee that you, as a professional expert, should be charging. I haven't seen to it be either. taken seriously. Yeah. That that's one so, of the things. That was probably the. In,
2: the, in Barnes & Noble, when I was flipping through your book, that was probably the first chapter that I turned to, I think.
1: There you go. There you go. So I'll tell you where it comes from. It comes from buyers assigning credibility to us based on the range of fees that they've already invested. So this goes back, Jordan, to knowing your buyers better than they know themselves. Because speakers, especially new speakers, they might come on the scene, they go, I have no idea what to charge. Okay, well, fair enough. Do you know what buyers are used to paying? That's the real question. Do you know what buyers are used to paying? Because you have to fit into their scheme. It's not like, oh, so Jordan, I'm going to charge you $97,000 for this speech. That would send a completely incongruent out of touch message. Similarly, Jordan, I'm going to charge you $97 for my keynote speech. That would also be completely incongruent with the range that buyers are used to investing. So about 10 years ago is when I started to really study this buyer behavior around pricing. And I've had dozens and dozens of explicit conversations with buyers about fees and fee ranges. And out of that, those dozen, and I've had hundreds of conversations where it's come up, but I've literally had dozens of fee-specific conversations, meaning what's the average price that you pay to bring in a speaker or a trainer? What's the most you've ever paid? What's the least you've ever paid? What happens when you bring in a cheap speaker or a free speaker? What happens when you pay $30,000, $40,000 for a celebrity speaker? So literally, we're talking about very explicit it's not like they're dropping hints. I am asking about these kinds of questions. Been doing it for 10 years. I've got probably two dozen data points across those 10 years. Here's what I found by way of pattern recognition if you charge less than $4,500, you are perceived as an amateur, you're perceived as less than an expert. So the pricing is attached directly to the perception of your expertise. Notice I said perception of your expertise. It's not tied to your expertise. There's some fantastic, amazing speakers who are grossly undercharging. Mm. And there are some not so great, mediocre speakers, and I'm being kind when I say mediocre, who are charging an arm and a leg and way overcharging for the value that they actually deliver. Now, who knows this? Other speakers might not necessarily know this, But buyers know this. So when I talk to buyers and I say, when's the last time that you blew $30,000 on a speaker that really wasn't worth it? They go, oh my gosh, We brought in this Major League Baseball player, Mm. did no customization, did no Mm. research, was totally tone deaf, had no idea what our members were going through, gave his standard off-the-shelf speech, jumped right back on the plane and went home, didn't sign books, wasn't nice to our meeting staff. Mm. Horrible, horrible experience. Mm. Okay, when's the last time you brought in a cheap speaker? for like a thousand bucks, 2000 bucks. Oh my God. I'm never doing that Mm. again. They were a total amateur. They made some filthy jokes. I got complaints for weeks and weeks afterwards. It was a disaster. I said, where's the sweet spot? Where's the sweet spot where you hire most of your speakers? And they said, well, most of our speakers are in the five to $10,000 range and most of them are sort of you know early on in that range, so four, five, six, seven thousand dollars is most of them, but we'll go as high as ten. And I said, tell me about those speakers. Well, they're fantastic. They do their homework, they do their research, they customize the program, they show up early, they never make inappropriate jokes. If they have anything to sell, they clear that with me first so that no one's pitching from the stage, blah, 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 blah. Uh, they do sign books, they fly in early, they stay late, they have dinner with the board, they're amazing, incredible people. Great. So when I say your starting fee needs to be 4500 bucks, you need to be the best bang for the buck they've ever seen. If it's less than 4500 remember, sweet spot's 5 k to 10 k but you got to walk before you run, before you fly. So start the floor, the minimum is 4500 bucks. A lot of folks listening because you have your indisputable points of proof, because you have the expertise and experience, you might be able to start higher. Maybe your fee should be 7500 out of the gate. Maybe someone else should be coming in with 6500 out of the gate. But it's going to be somewhere from 5 to 10, and it's so funny Jordan, I had a very experienced speaker come into one of our mentoring programs. And I said, dude, your fee should at least be 10K. He was so, he had a fantastic book. He had lots of indisputable points of proof, fantastic track record, amazing testimonials. He said to me, David, for the few times that I've gotten paid $15,000, should I give them a $5,000 refund? And I said, no, you should not give them a $5,000 refund. But I just wanted to make sure that you weren't undercharging and that you were right-charging because that's the real word. It's right charging versus wrong charging. That That's where the pricing supports the perception of your expertise instead of undermining it.
2: Again, relevant to whether you're a speaker or not. I think no matter what you're selling, that's relevant in one way or another.
1: You got to know the market. You got to yeah. know the buyers. You got to know their buying patterns and behaviors and price points for sure.
2: Yeah. Now, David, we were talking a little earlier. I know we're again we're jumping around. I t- I told you that was going to happen, uh, <laughs> but I'd be remiss if I didn't bring this back up because I see this here in my notes. We're talking about you know oh get pick up the you know picking up the phone and calling them you know returning their message. Uh, we're talking about you know getting back and you know popping up in their inbox maybe you know every seven to ten days with something relevant that made you think of them. But there's this quote from your book. And actually, before I get there, one I, I always believe that the fortune is in the follow-up. But a quote from your book says, I never follow up. I don't call. They call me. What do you mean?
1: Well, that is when you're a little bit deeper into the relationship. So for example, if, if they were interested in a call, I would send them my calendar link and the calendar link says at that time, please call David on, you know, 555-1212. So I think that we're all doctors. I think that we're all healers. We're all professional problem solvers. When you're feeling sick, the doctor doesn't call you. Like the doctor's not going to call you say, Jordan, are, are you okay? Are, are you, are you feeling sick today? You need some medicine. You need some stuff. No, when you are sick, you call the professional. You call the doctor. So to maintain our posture as professional experts, I think it's very important to make our calendars available to prospects and say, choose a time that works for you. At that time, you're going to be calling me to discuss your situation, to share some things that I might be able to help you with, To share some problems symptoms conditions etc if i have the appropriate treatment i will let you know and if i don't i will point you in the right direction and recommend some other people or some other things that you might try so i'm literally i've stopped chasing yeah i've stopped hounding stop begging right i think it's a mix of inbound and outbound strategies that elevate our authority and separate us as trusted advisors from peddlers and salespeople and schmucks,
2: you want to be a trusted advisor to the person. You know your your prospect is is what you're saying.
1: Exactly.
2: Okay, makes sense. And again, you know something that you cover more and do it speaking and probably do it marketing. I'm not sure. Now, David, I have I have three more questions and then my final question. So really, four more questions. Now, this these three here, they're more on, you know, about preparing a presentation and, and speaking and, you know, what what do you do when you're actually up there? So I always find it funny. You know, I've taken, uh, you know, throughout college I took two public speaking classes and it's always like the teachers, they all, they all preach, I'll oh, give a, get up there, give a preview of your three main points, then go into your three main points and then restate your three main points all the while the kids throw up slide after slide after slide with five bullets on every slide and none of them get nobody gets penalized for that and they're just reading from it and they're behind the podium and i'm just like oh my god like is what schools are teaching is is that like a bunch of bs because when i'm prepar- when i was preparing for a ted talk when i read the ted talks book by Chris Anderson two years ago, way before I even knew I was going to have a TED talk. And then while I was preparing for it, they say very explicitly, one of the main things that they hammer down is don't talk about your talk. Just talk about it. Or no, don't talk about how you're going to talk about your talk. Just talk about it. That's right. Yeah. Like, like what schools are, they're just not, I don't know where they're getting their resources from, but I think it's a bunch of BS.
1: Right. I totally agree. I think the, the key, and the, you know, the TED Talk guidelines talk about this, it really is about story and emotion. It's not about some canned structure about tell them what you're going to tell them, and then tell them, and then tell them what you told them, which is the old cliche about the structure you're talking about. But it really is about taking people on an emotional and intellectual journey through a story and through a story arc But you're not the hero of this story. You got to put the The audience as the hero of the story. And don't tell them what you know, because that sounds preachy and that's the kind of old school data dump. Tell them what you've learned along the way of this story that can be immediately helpful to them, their lives, their businesses, their careers.
2: Yeah. Uh, Making the audience the hero, that's something that I learned only in the past few months from my speaking coach, his name's John Bates. Not sure if you know him or not, but, uh, so, okay, here's this next question where I've just been so messed up in the head about this one in preparing for my Ted talk because I've never written out a speech before. Not, not I, I'm more, you know, I will I'll prepare, but I'm more off the cuff. Like I don't have every exact word I'm going to say, like, planned out and I come on like I come off as a very natural speaker people say like I'm I'm a pretty great dynamic uh speaker when I get up there and I'm doing things the way I want to do them but you know with Ted they want you to turn in like a full word draft and so what do you think should you should you write a speech should you memorize it David what do you think about those things
1: well those are two fantastic questions uh, you should never, ever, ever memorize a speech. Oh, God. Period, end of sentence. Whether or not writing it out is helpful, my personal bias is no, because the most authentic speakers speak from experience, and it's like an onstage conversation. Why in the world would you need to write out an entire onstage conversation? Now, what you might want to write out is an outline or some bullet points mm-hmm. but if you're giving a 45 minute speech think in terms of you know 3 to 5 minute story segments so i'm going to tell the parallel parking story i'm going to tell the story about uh when i first started out in business i'm going to tell the, and again even in this podcast i have pulled out some nuggets and some stories from my, my own experience from clients experiences etc that I haven't memorized, and if you ask me, you know, five different times, I will tell you the same story five slightly different ways. Because it's a conversation, it is a human-to-human, spontaneous conversation. It might depend on the day, it might depend on what I had for breakfast, it might depend on what I'm doing next, it might depend on a conversation I had yesterday that sheds some new light onto that or gives the audience some additional insight into it. So I never, ever, ever memorize a speech. And I really am a little bit dubious about writing it out. I do believe we need to have a strong outline. And I will tell you what you do need to have locked in. The only thing you need to have locked in is the first 60 seconds. That needs to be totally dialed in, totally prepared, totally ready to go. First 60 seconds with your introduction, your your own the introduction to your speech, not the speaker introduction where someone else introduces you and your conclusion, the conclusion you have to stick the landing. It needs to be powerful. It needs to be concise. So if I were to script out anything at all, it would be my first 60 seconds. And even there, I might just have detailed bullets instead of a full script. And it would be the last 60 seconds, the remaining 58 minutes in between Jordan it's an on stage human to human conversation with my audience.
2: Yeah. And, and that's the way I'm used to doing it and the way that I thrive. But, you know, David, I do have a full, I, I've got the, I've got the full worded out thing for, for Ted. And that I, you know, that I, up until the, the day I got um, postponed, uh, I practiced every single day, twice a day. Right. And, is there any is there hope for me? Is there course correcting here?
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I would simply throw out the script and I would translate that into bullets. Mm. And I would practice it in your living room, in your kitchen. If you have slides, set up the laptop on the kitchen counter, click through the slides, you know, Tell the story to the dog, tell the story to the sofa, tell the story to the window, tell the story to the door. So make eye contact with real audience members as you would on a stage and uh, see if we can vary it up. See if we can put a little humanity and, and yeah. uh, spontaneity back into it because the best speech is is not when you hit play on a tape recorder. The best speech is when you feel that that speaker is having an authentic, you know, they're not retelling their stories. They're reliving their stories. And you're going to, if you, if I asked you to relive a really cool, fun experience on three different days, you would relive that experience slightly differently. Some details might be more vivid one time. Some details might be more vivid the next time. Sometimes you would even think of something that you hadn't even thought of. And a new detail pops into your mind that you're going to add to that. So I would be reliving my stories, not retelling it from a dead, kind of inert, memorized piece of content.
2: Yeah, and it makes me, you saying that really uh, makes me see the blessing even more in having the talk postponed because I did have it absolutely memorized to a T. and But now, it's been a month since I've practiced it. I don't have it memorized anymore. So what I think I'm gonna do and correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm going to go through and just make a couple of bullet points, like you said, and, 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 uh, or more than a couple, but, and then just talk it from there and, and see what happens. Okay. I'm going to do that. Last thing body language. The heck do you do in terms of body language? And, and now this is something I vehemently disagree with my speaking coach about that I didn't really, I didn't really tell him I disagreed, but <laughs> I, uh, uh, you know, everything he says is great. This is the one thing that just, I'm not a fan of standing in one spot. No, I'm gonna walk walk the heck around. Like, right? Should you walk around or stand in one spot? What do you think?
1: Well, I think the TED guidelines really want you anchored like a statue, or at least for most of your talk, anchored like a statue. I think if you showed up at a national association conference or a big corporate meeting and you stood stock still in the middle of the stage, that would be weird. Uh, So I do believe in intentional movement. I believe in intentional movement and gestures that support your story. Uh, And I I don't think standing stock still, because your body is another communication instrument. Why would you have it stand stock still in the middle of the stage? You know, just like your face, your voice, your body, they all work together to relive those stories and those messages that you wanna share with your audience why would you knock one of those out of commission by standing stock still the whole time?
2: Now, if you, if you have to stand still ish, what am I, you know, what do I do? I just kind of like use my hands and it feels awkward.
1: Yeah. Gestures and body again, intentional gestures with your hands, a little bit of movement, you know, turning your body one way or the other, maybe literally taking one step on the red carpet to the left when necessary, one step to the right. Um, but there, your voice becomes even more important. So varying things like pitch, tone, volume, pace, uh, those are also uh, very colorful tools that you have at your disposal that might compensate somewhat for your body being somewhat more inert. Uh-huh. If your voice is more dynamic, in other words.
2: Gotcha. David, we, we got through it. How, how do you feel? before we feel great good so do it speaking highly encourage people to get that book that is the book that i read there's also a book called do it marketing that i think i'm going to get next so get those books and david do you have like do you have anything else that you'd want to direct people to if they want yes, to learn indeed. more. We have
1: a couple of cool resources on our website. One is our free web training, which is at doitmarketing.com/slash webinar. And of course, we have a blog with a lot of free content, a podcast, Jordan, like yours, that has a lot of cool guests and some great content. So I would explore all the free resources at doitmarketing.com.
2: And what are those gonna you know, talking about, practicing what we preach, talking about the outcome. That we're going to bring people to. What what are what's the outcome that we're gonna that these resources are going to bring people to? What are they going to help people
1: do? Well, so if you if you listen and implement and adapt these strategies, you will get more leads, you will get better prospects, and you will make bigger sales.
2: Bam, David. Before I ask my final question, just thank you. I know, uh, like I said, we had a lot of questions, so I knew this one was gonna. Go long-ish today, and you've been a good sport, and thanks for bringing the fire. I appreciate you. It's been a lot of fun. You're a real expert in your craft, as you know.
1: Thank you so much.
2: So final question to ask everyone. If you could teach a course at a university, a course of your creation or otherwise, what would it be?
1: I think it would be about mastery. Mastery. About what it takes to really be the go-to expert, have mastered your topic, mastered your mindset, mastered your marketing. So I'll leave people with this, and especially, Jordan, if they're a regular listener of your podcast, which they should be. The master is always the student. So if you want to pursue mastery, the best thing you can do is to be a sponge, learn, unlearn, relearn, apply the learning that you have collected and then always be learning something new, something bigger, something better, because the master is always the student.
2: Do it speaking. One of the chapters in there, one of my favorite chapters, this is going to give you an idea just how helpful the book is. Killer sales questions for speakers. And really, I think anyone, I wouldn't necessarily nail it down to four speakers, uh, and what is there? There's like twenty questions in that chapter, like 20, Just a lot of a lot of chapters. Like that's one out of seventy-seven. So, do it. Speaking, David Newman, you're the man. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you, sir.
0: We've reached the end of this episode of Growth Mindset University. For more keys to success and methods to inspire your entrepreneurial spirit, head to jordanparis.com course and enroll in our free course to elevate your podcast to the next level. Be sure to pass the show along to someone you know who will benefit from the lessons learned in each episode, and we'll catch you and them on the next episode of Growth Mindset University.